We do have an assignment coming up due this week, which is the third homework. Uh, so that will be due next time. I should be through, hopefully we'll be through, we'll finish chapter 21 and should get through most if not all of chapter 22, which will be the rest of what you need for the homework today. So that will be due next time and then we have the uh, solar observation submission. Again, I'm looking for one new good observation uh, that you've made since the last one, but if you've only turned in three, you're behind because that project is going to be due, I can't remember if it's the end of November, I think it's the end of November, beginning of December, I have to check the exact date I put on there. Uh, but that's going to be coming up due, the whole project is going to be due soon, so you're running a little bit behind. But remember, the actual making of the observations is just a portion of the credit. So if you only get to make a few, you can still do the rest of the project and be able to complete that. Complete that. And I'll be going that over in more detail in just a couple of weeks. Uh, and we will take one whole class that is pretty much dedicated to going over that. One of the labs will be how you do the calculations. Remember I said just fill those first five columns in for right now. I will go through examples and one of our labs will be to do those calculations in here. So I can come around and help you and make sure that you're getting them all correct and that will make the graphs that I'm going to have you do. That should all be done in class. You have me check it off, say that everything's great, and you know that when you're writing up your project that at least you're not concerned that the calculations or the graphs that I'm doing those wrong, that you'll know that those portions are already correct. Otherwise, for next week we also have the third exam. So the review quizzes are up and available, and they're available through the time of the start of the exam, which is 8.30 uh, next Thursday. So again, make sure you go in and at least take a look at those. They're the same multiple choice uh, test banks that I'm using for the multiple choice portion of the exam. So make sure you are taking a look at those and you do get a, uh, up, to, up to three points of extra credit for having taken them. So it's, it can't hurt you to go through and review them. They'll help you with the exam and they might give you a point or two of extra credit depending on how you did on your last attempt on them. Then the exam itself will of course be on the 8th next Thursday and that will cover through the three units, the chapters that we've covered. So chapters 17 through 19 were one unit, chapters 20 through 21 that we're finishing up were another unit, and then chapter 22 which we're going to start on today is the third unit of those. So you'll have 10 questions from each of those three sections in terms of multiple choice and then you will have the essays set up just as they have been before. And do remember that HR diagram that I gave out. Uh, make sure you're looking at that and reviewing that because I can guarantee at some point, I don't know whether it's going to be in the required essay or in one of the other essays, but I know you're going to have to see to be able to, that's going to be one of the questions. You will see that as one of the questions on the exam. So it will be there someplace. I haven't decided exactly where to put it yet, but it will be something that you'll want to be able to reproduce. So. Take a look at that, make sure you have that all ready uh, for the exam. And since you can have your key point sheets, don't forget to print those out. You can copy the, you can have it there. So again, it's supposed to be easy. You can get this, I know you can get this one. And yes, you can put that, if you want to copy that HR, you can't bring that sheet that I gave you. But you may copy it onto your HR diagram. That way I know you've drawn it. At least again, got some of it in your head and you've drawn the others. So uh, that's, that's one of the things that you will be seeing on one of the essays. So easy part of the essays, you know you can get one of them right or at least almost completely right if, you're, if you've got that on your, on your key point sheets. So don't forget that, don't forget to do that and have those key point sheets printed out for it. Alright, questions assignment wise.
right, I don't see any. We'll go on to our picture of the day for today, uh, which is the Orionid meteors. I'm going to try to get the whole picture on there. I'm going to zoom that in a little bit because it's a little hard to see. We want to look at the main portion of it. That should be a little bit better. Uh, this is part of the Orionid meteor shower. So a meteor shower occurs when material from a comet strikes the Earth's atmosphere. Comets are made up of icy and dusty material. They're little tiny specks, grains of sand, flakes of uh, almost like snowflakes, little bits of snow, ice, water ice. And when the comet comes close to the sun, it heats up. And those particles, the comet's small, it might only be a few kilometers across, so the, the, it can't hold on to those. It doesn't have a strong gravity to be able to hold on to those particles. So they get left behind. But they still have gravity, the sun still pulls on them, they orbit the sun just like the comet did. So they still follow along in the comet's orbit, and sometimes the Earth happens to intersect that comet's orbit. So when the two intersect, we don't hit the comet. The comet may be way out in the outer solar system. As it is in this case, these are actually bits of leftover of Halley's Comet. So one of the, more com one of the better known comets that exists. But every time it comes in close to the sun, every 76 years, it leaves more material behind in its orbit. And even though it's out in the depths of the solar system, we're plowing through its, uh, its orbit right now and hitting all these little pieces that have been left behind for hundreds and hundreds of years. And when they strike the Earth's atmosphere, they hit it at really high speeds and they burn up. So they never make it down to the surface of the Earth. They hit the Earth's atmosphere at tens of thousands of miles per hour. They heat up little tiny grains, they vaporize, and they give us what we see as a shooting star. So we see a shooting star streak across the sky, and that's what all these little trails are, would be what you would see as a shooting star. Now there's a lot of them there. If you actually look at the image, you can see dozens and dozens of them. They don't occur this fast if you're looking. This is multiple images taken over several hours to see all of these meteors. If you go out and look at a good meteor shower, if you're getting a really good meteor shower, you might get one or two a minute. So you might see one, you might wait a minute or so, you might happen to see another one. That's a really intense meteor shower. A more if spotty one, you might have to wait 10, 5, 10, or 15 minutes between each meteor. So although we call it a shower, it's not like a rain shower where the raindrops are coming down constantly. They're uh, very intermittent. You will see them. Uh, they'll be, they'll, you will see them over the course of the night, but you won't see lots of them. You won't be looking out there and seeing all these different things streaking through the sky. You'll see one, and a little while later you'll see another one uh, later on. So uh, that's what we're seeing here is actually little bits of Halley's Comet that are burning up in the atmosphere. Questions? Yes? Do most people pronounce that wrong? Because I've heard Halley's Comet. I hear it both ways. I've always gone Halley's. It's sort of like Uranus and Uranus. There are two different pronunciations. Some people use one, some use another. And I don't think either one of them is specifically right or wrong. Without going back to the 1700s and hearing how, you know, Halley pronounced or Haley pronounced his name, I don't know. <laughs> But good, yeah, but yeah, that's just the way I've always learned to do it, so I continue to do it, same as I always say Uranus. That's just the way I learned it years ago, so I keep doing it. <laughs> good though. Other questions? All right, well, let's go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Which one? Number 10. Okay, you're going to have to let me look at what number 10 is. 
Okay. Okay, so if anyone else is looking at it, let's just take, let me go take a few minutes and we'll look at this. We're looking at an exoplanet system. We've got one planet that orbits in 290 days and another planet that orbits in 145 days. I hope that you can tell me just based on those two which one is closer. Right? Just on our, what, what happens in our solar system? How long does it take Mercury versus Venus versus, versus Earth? You should be able, just by that, you should be able to tell me which one is closer. Maybe not how much closer, but you should be able to tell me that. Um, if the star has the same mass as the Sun, then I ask you to calculate the semi-major axis of the orbit. That would be using a cubed equals p squared. If it's, the, if it's the same mass as the Sun, this will apply. If it was different, then there'd be a slightly different equation. So this is way back from Kepler's law back in chapter 2 or 3. It was way, way back there. But you can use that same equation. You know what P is? So P is 290 days. Convert it to years. Did I tell you that? Yes, I did say that. Convert the periods into years. So don't, don't put 290 in here. Divide 290 by 365, get a fraction of a year. Square that, take the cube root, it will give you the semi-major axis. So 290, convert it, divide it by 365 to convert it to years, then square it, and then take the cube root. And I think we did this, didn't we do that? I think we did a lab exercise way, I know, way, way back in September sometime where I had you do some of these. But that's all you need to do for those and make sure you're showing me your work. So all you're going to do is figure out two periods and with those you should be and then just use those days. So the first one you should just be able to answer. So give me that one even if you have difficulties with the calculation and then all you do with the calculation is, the, is those steps. Does that get you there? So all you're using is this equation. And because it's the mass of the sun, now if it was different, you'd have to do some other things. If it was like twice the mass of the sun, that's why I made it the mass of the sun to make it a little bit easier. Others? All right. Well, let's go ahead on to chapter 21. We were finishing up. And now I'm trying to remember. I thought I had gone through, did I talk about the planets? I think I'd gone to this slide. Someone can remind me where I was because I, I was, I had I gone through selection effects or I was just getting there. I had so let me summarize that real quick, and we'll start there to kind of review as to where we, where we picked up. There we go. That would come out a little bit bigger. Okay. Um, so selection effects is a big thing for finding these planets because. The two, the two biggest methods that have given us you know, over 3,000 of the 3,600 planets that we know of outside the solar system, the radial velocity and the transit method, they have, they have a bias because it's really easy to detect a big planet. A big planet is going to tug on its star more, giving it a bigger velocity. So Jupiter is going to tug on the sun more than the Earth is. So it's easier to detect a Jupiter-like planet than it is an Earth-like planet. Not that there's any reason we want to, it's just that they cre create a bigger radial velocity, so it's easier to detect them. They also create bigger eclipses. Bigger planet blocks out more of the star's light. It's going to be easier to detect a big planet. So they're easier, to, better at detecting large planets. They're also better at detecting planets that are close to their stars because 
they're orbiting faster. Faster orbit means it occurs more often. The eclipse occurs more often or the radial velocity changes occur more often. So if they occur every couple of weeks, every month, then it doesn't take very long to see multiple times that this has occurred. That we've had this eclipse and we had the eclipse in say the orbit is a month. Well we had the eclipse at the middle of June, middle of July, middle of August. We can get within a year we can see multiple eclipses. If we wanted to look at something like Jupiter, some distant astronomer looking at our sun trying to figure out if there are planets here, well if they watch Jupiter eclipsing it, you'd see it, you'd see it now. Okay, we're what, October of 2018. It'll be 12 years before it eclipses again. So you'd be waiting and waiting and waiting to see that planet eclipse again. And it takes a long time. So you'd have to wait 12 years just to see it the second time. If you saw an eclipse today, you'd be waiting 12 years. Then you've got to wait another 12 to confirm it. It's like, okay, I've got two, I'm pretty sure, but let me predict it now and see if it comes true. So you can be waiting decades to detect a planet like Jupiter. So if it, goes, if it goes really quick, then that's great. You can actually detect it, but there is a bias towards these. So there are smaller planets, and in fact, but many smaller planets that probably exist. And when I looked at these kind of things, I showed you this graph last time, that these Mars-sized planets, there's hardly any of them that have been detected. They're hard to see. They don't dim the light very much. They don't uh, they don't, uh, they don't in the light, they don't pull on their star very much. Some of these are hard to see as well because there's probably lots of Jupiter-like planets but we haven't been observing long enough to have seen them. Again, Jupiter you would need decades and decades of watching. And that's the, going on Saturn, it's even worse. Right, Saturn's further away, Saturn takes 30 years to orbit. So you see one eclipse today, you gotta wait 30 years before you see the second one. You gotta wait 60 years to get the third one to confirm it. So it's a long time. It can be a lifetime project to try to find these kinds of stars. Uranus and Neptune are even worse. You're talking 100, almost 100 years, well 80 some years for Uranus and 100 plus years for Neptune to see each of those eclipses or to see radial velocity effects. So they'd be really hard to, affect, to, to detect. So the fact that we find so many here might just be a selection effect. It might not be indicative of how many planets there really are. There might be a lot more planets here that we just can't detect yet. Too small. Our, our equipment just is not sensitive enough to detect these. So these may actually start to grow relative to these over time. I can pretty much, I'd estimate that these would too. These ones that are out here, we're detecting some large planets, but we'll probably start to see more that are further away that have orbits that are five years, eight years, nine, ten. We'll start to see those as we start to observe for decades and decades. So one of the problems we've been having is that these Jupiter-like planets are hard to find if they're at the distance of Jupiter in our solar system. So what we're seeing right now is a biased selection. Not that we're trying to be biased in it, it's just simply, hey, these are the ones we can detect because they're making, they're the ones that make the biggest splash. They're easiest to see when they have a large, they cha change the velocity a lot or they dim the star's light a lot. Those are the ones that are easiest to do and they do it more often so we can quickly detect those kinds. So right now, even though 3,000 sounds like a lot, we're talking about billions of stars in our galaxy 
And I think as we start to find more and more, we'll get an even better idea of you know, what the distribution of planets is really like. But that could take decades, that could take centuries of observations. So that's kind of where I finished up last time and I kind of finished up down there. You know, Jupiter around our sun would take decades to really detect. So we would not, with the time we've been doing this, we would not have been able to have a confirmation of a Jupiter-like planet orbiting at a Jupiter's distance around a sun-like star. We do not have that kind of time frame to observe enough eclipses, enough radial velocity measurements to be able to detect it using these two most common methods. The other ones, yes, in some cases, but they're also, uh, some of them are very spotty in terms of what you can detect. So what are we seeing when we look at some of these? Well, we do get some orbits, some systems like this. This is the Kepler-90 system, which actually has eight planets in it, just like ours. So we're finding systems that not only have one planet or two planets, but actually have multiple planets. And the Kepler-90 has eight known planets, but again, we're still biased towards detecting some of them. This is put to scale with our solar system. So here on, here on the right-hand side is us. There's Mercury, Venus, and Earth. On the left-hand side is Kepler-90 which has one, two, three, four, five, five of those eight planets are inside the Earth's orbit. So while we have three planets, one AU or less from the Sun, Mercury, Venus, and the Earth, this one has five. And then there's a couple more that are only a little bit further out within Mars's orbit. So almost all of those planets are within Mars's orbit. So it might have more. Maybe there are more out there that we just haven't had the time to be able to detect. Remember, the further you get away from the star, Kepler, that's detecting them through, through the eclipses. So as they get further away, it takes longer and longer to see those eclipses. That inner planet here, I don't remember the exact numbers, but that's whipping around closer than Mercury. So you might get that every few months. You get out to Earth, you're seeing it every year. You get out further than Earth, you're seeing it, you might be waiting a year or two. You're starting to detect those. But when you get out further, when you get out beyond Mars, out to Jupiter's distance, there may be a lot more planets there that we just don't know about yet. So this one may actually have, right now we know of eight, it might actually have more. Um, TRAPPIST-1 is another one that has been detected that has seven planets. So we are actually detecting solar systems that are, that are somewhat similar in terms of the number of planets to our own. We also mention these that it has several that are in what we call the habitable zone of the star. That doesn't mean they're necessarily habitable. In fact, I think I have a picture of them here. Um, so there are, you know, our solar system, this is the TRAPPIST-1, but again, it's not the same Right, those are the Kepler ones. I'm sorry, those are still the Kepler 90 system. I didn't print out this, I didn't give you the picture of the Trappist ones. So these are the sizes of the planets compared to our solar system. Let me go back to that one and I'll come back to talking about habitable zones. But these are the eight planets that are known there. Now these are to scale in terms of size, they're not to scale in terms of distance. They're all located way in here. If we scaled this out, our solar system would go way out here. And this one would end you know, in a little bit in between Earth and Mars. So this is an example of when we see some of those hot Jupiters. We see Jupiter-sized planet. One of those planets is bigger than Jupiter. But it's closer to the star than Jupiter is. We do see some that are Earth-sized or even what we call the super-Earths, a couple times the size of the Earth. 
These are the ones that we could consider habitable if they're at the right location within their solar system. And when we say something is habitable, all it means is that it's at the right distance from its star where liquid water could exist. That's all that when we talk about something, when they say there's a habitable planet, it doesn't mean we could go there and live. It just means it's at the right distance from its star that liquid water could potentially exist on its surface. Doesn't mean that it does or that we know that it does. But it's certainly more likely than looking at a planet like you find that's like Mercury. Right? Way too hot for liquid water. It would not be considered habitable. Jupiter, way too far out to be considered habitable. So it's that narrow range around the star where the temperature would be right that liquid water might exist. So when you hear that, when you hear that a habitable planet is discovered, that's all it means. So on our system, you know, Earth would be considered in the habitable zone. Venus is just on the inside edge. Mars is just on the outside edge. They're kind of borderline. They could be considered habitable. Neither one of them, well, Mars, maybe. You could actually live on Mars. Venus is completely out of the question. Temperatures, pressures, they are just you know, inconsistent with any kind of, uh, any kind of having any kind of life there. So, but even though it's really close to the habitable zone, it could be, if you looked at that from outside, you might say, well, it's got a couple planets. Maybe Venus is in the habitable zone too. But it doesn't mean that there's necessarily life there. All right, so some of these other systems. Here is the TRAPPIST-1 uh, system. So TRAPPIST-1 has all of these, see here's seven planets. If you look at their uh, distances, they are all incredibly close to the star. Um, I don't know if you can read those from here. If you have the slides you can print out. This is 1 one-hundredth of an astronomical unit. This goes out to 6 one-hundredths of an astronomical unit. They're all much closer than Mercury. However, it's also a much smaller, fainter star. So some of these stars could, some of these planets could still be habitable because it is a smaller star, cooler, so you've got to be closer to it to be at the right temperature. If you were this close to our sun, it would be uninhabitable. They'd be, you know, completely rocky, barren worlds like Mercury is in our solar system. However, these ones around another star can actually, could potentially be habitable. And some of these are very close in terms of mass, that they are very close to an Earth mass here, uh, very close to the Earth radius, like this one here. Uh, TRAPPIST-1F uh, is actually very similar to the Earth in terms of size, in terms of mass. So there are some possibilities that we are starting to find out there as to you know, what could be, what could, that there could be other habitable worlds out there. The number is still in question and we're still, as I said, there's a bias towards not finding these types of planets. The smaller planets like the Earth are harder to find. So what has this changed? Well, we're having to make some modifications to how we think planets formed. So we talked a little bit about how stars formed. Big cloud of gas and dust, material left behind within most of the material to the center forming the star. Material left behind would form the planets. However, the way we think planets formed and the way we define them in terms of our solar system is we say that those stars, those planets near the sun, it would have been hot. They'd be made of rocky materials, right? Ices couldn't form in the inner part of the solar system. So we wouldn't expect Mercury to be a planet made up of ice, right? It's real hot there. Ice is all going to melt and vaporize and turn to gas and escape. So you would not expect to find ice on Mercury, Venus, 
and even not that much on Earth or Mars. If you look at what Earth is composed of, most of it is rock and metal. We've got a little bit of water and ice on the outer layers, but overall it's mostly rocky and metallic material. So some of the things that our nebula theory that we try to explain with it cannot explain things like the hot Jupiters. If you get a a planet with Jupiter's mass and Jupiter's size, it's got to have the composition similar to Jupiter, meaning it's got to be made of gases. How do you get something that large, as large as Jupiter, forming really close to its star? And that's something that we can't explain. However, I mean, our model says they shouldn't exist. We observe them, they do exist, so we have to be able to make adjustments. Part of the scientific method, we've got to be able to make adjustments to our model to, be ex- to explain that. So one of the things that has actually been suggested is planetary migrations. That planets, where they are right now, might not be where they formed. And in fact, we now even think this within our own solar system, that some of the planets have moved from where they originally formed. That the ordering, especially of the outer planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, is not how they originally formed. That Uranus and Neptune might have been in closer and might have migrated outward. Jupiter might have migrated inward. So they've changed. Now they've been stable for billions of years now, but their positions can change. Yeah? Would that be because of the gravity of the sun pulling on them? Not the gravity of the sun, more the interactions of each individual planet. So the planets would interact with each other gravitationally and they'd change their orbits a little bit. And that could happen, especially early on in the solar system, that could have changed their orbits. So we think this is something that happens very early on, not, although there still are some cases where it could go on to some extent today, most places this occurred a long time ago. But it wouldn't just be the sun's gravity. If it was just the sun and the planet, it would be fine. You'd have a nice simple orbit. When that other planet tugs on it, pulls it out a little bit, and slowly over time you could take something that was further out and bring it in, or something that was further in and bring it out, and you could actually change those. So that's a way to explain hot Jupiters. Well, they didn't form close to the star, but they were brought in close to the star through interactions. And maybe our solar system has had less interactions that didn't manage to bring a Jupiter in closer. Maybe something else happened in our solar system. Maybe that's common. We don't know because we still don't have enough uh, planets. So migrations actually moving. Planets might actually move. That's one way to explain things like hot Jupiters. We also detect planets with high eccentricities. Remember the term right from way back? Eccentricity is how squashed the orbit is. Most of our planets are nice circular orbits. We find some that are really elliptical. That's unusual. We don't see that in our solar system for the planets. And we also see them orbiting at large angles. Remember, take a solar, take a, take a piece of paper and draw a model solar system. Pretty good representation of what things are actually like. We find planets that if you draw, you need a three-dimensional thing to draw planets that are coming up and down this way and some that are going this way. We find varieties of that. And that might be related to the migrations. Maybe there are more gravitational interactions. And maybe our solar system happened to settle down into this format of very flattened, but maybe other solar systems do not. And we also don't know if our system is unusual or, again, remember the bias in detecting these. Maybe these are the easier types to detect. Maybe these types are easier to detect and as we start getting up from just a few thousand planets to tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands, maybe these will be the oddballs. 
or maybe will be the oddball. We don't know. But something, as we find more and more, we'll get better statistics, we'll get a better idea of how the planets actually formed. So the other thing that we find, so our models now, this is what I uh, mentioned, that Uranus and Neptune probably form closer to Jupiter and Saturn. So we make models of our solar system, trying to explain how our solar system formed, putting all this together, that Uranus and Neptune might have been much closer and might have migrated outward. So it could be, it could be something that happens quite a bit. And models and gravitational models that we make up of the early solar system seems, seem to show this. Again, we'd like to see more and more of those. We also find that planets are very common close to, our, close to stars. Why not in our solar system? Why is the nearest one about four-tenths of an astronomical unit away? We get some that are a hundredths that are orbiting their planets in days or even less. So why not in our solar system? You know, it's a good question. I can't give you an answer to it. Why does that not occur in our solar system? Were they there? Did they end up getting kicked out of the solar system? Did they never exist at all? Or are there just varieties of different types of solar systems? And again, those ones that are close to the stars are the easiest ones to detect. So those are the ones that we can detect most easily. And we may see as we start detecting more and more that those are the small fraction. And that the other ones would be more likely. And one of the difficulties was that the solar nebula model was made up, not wrongly, it was all we had at the time. It was based on one solar system. It was based on ours. It's all we knew of back in the 70s, 80s, 60s, 70s, 80s. We only knew of one solar system. So we had to base everything based on that. So we figured, OK, we're typical. But it would be like you know, basing a model of you know, human beings based on one person. Wouldn't work very well because there are a lot of differences between people. Well, there's a lot of differences we're seeing between solar systems. Not that astronomers didn't know this. They just had nothing else. If you only have one person to study, what can you do? You only had one solar system to study. So as we start to find, we have now thousands of systems, and as that gets larger and larger, we're going to get a better picture of how planets formed. And then the last thing I wanted to mention here before we move on to the chapter 22 is what we mean by a habitable planet. I've gone over some of this, but I wanted to kind of emphasize what we mean. The biggest thing is that there's the potential. Not that liquid water exists, but there is the potential. It's at the right temperature for liquid water to exist. We also expect that they should be similar in size to the Earth. If it's a little tiny planet, it's probably not going to have the gravity to hold an atmosphere and not going to be able to have water. So we look for something that's maybe half the size of the Earth, Mars size, maybe twice the size of the Earth. If it gets too big, then they start to be more gaseous planets. So maybe that range right around Earth from about half the size to about uh, double the size. And we've detected maybe a dozen of these so far. Not a lot, but that's still, out of those 3,600, 12, 12 or so of them are considered, would be considered habitable. And the image shown here, this is of the nearest possible one. And this is Proxima Centauri b. Uh, Alpha Centauri is the nearest bright star to us. It's actually a multiple star system. So Alpha Centauri itself actually has two stars really close together. But there's a third one that's a really small faint star that orbits those two. And that's Proxima Centauri. It's a small red star. It actually happens to be on the near side of its orbit right now. So right now, it's the closest star to us. 
It's actually slightly closer than Alpha Centauri. And this is an example of what an artist's conception of this planet might look like based on how far, how far away it is from its star. It's really close because it's a very cool, faint star. It's not one that you could go out at night and see. You can go out at night if you're far enough south, not from our latitudes. You can actually go out at night and see Alpha Centauri. It's a relatively bright star. Proxima Centauri, you need telescopes to be able to see. But it does have a star and has, is the nearest habitable exoplanet. So it would be one of those ones, you know, if we could somehow travel four light years, it would be one of the ones that we'd want to try to look at. Again, we can't. If I could send something there now, it would take us thousands and thousands of years to get there. And we don't have anything that's going to survive thousands of years to get, to get there and then send us a signal back even thousands of years from now. Because what's, what kind of energy source is it going to use out there? Solar power works great in part of the solar system, but as you get further away from the sun and you're not getting closer to any other stars as you do this, you're getting more out into the depths of space, there's really nothing there. So you have to find some energy source that will last a longer time. Nuclear power works really well going out into the outer solar system, but it also only works for a limited amount of time. The Voyager probes use this, but they're slowly losing their energy and they've only been out there for decades, not thousands of years. So again, that's the nearest one and that's the artist's conception based on it. So finishing up uh, chapter 21, again we found a lot of exoplanets. We've got 3,600 and the types that we find are a lot different than the planets we know in our solar system. There are some Earth-like planets, there are some Jupiter-like planets, but there are also things in between that we don't see in our solar system. There are very odd planets, things like hot Jupiters and other unusual types of planets that we're finding that is causing us to rethink models of how the solar system formed and how planets form. And finally, habitable planets, we're starting to be able to detect those. Those have been relatively recent within the last, well, within the last decade at least that we've been able to detect planets like that. So it's still a very, very new field and that will continue to grow. Measurements get better, equipment gets better, we can detect those smaller planets that are a little bit further away from their stars. All right, questions? Okay, do it that way, there we go. All right, then we will get on to chapter 22 uh, from the beginning, there we go. So now we want to look at, we looked at star formation now we want to look at the lives of the star. Now the life of a star is pretty boring. There's not a whole lot to talk about. We talked about the sun. That's pretty much what we know about stars. If you remember when a star formed, it formed from a big cloud of gas and dust and it contracted until nuclear reactions began. Then it became what we call a main sequence star. So what is life like on the main sequence? Well it's incredibly boring. The sun has been like it, like it is right now for about four and a half billion years. If we could come back four and a half billion years from now, the sun will not have changed much. Things on Earth might have changed, other things, but the sun is going to be essentially the same. It will not change in about 10 billion years. So four and a half billion before, four and a half billion later, that's nine billion years worth. And the sun is essentially the same. About 90% of the star's life is that boring phase. There's not a whole lot more to say about it. No changes for millions. If you went back a million years or a billion years 
and measured how much energy the sun was putting out, it would be pretty much the same as it was today. Minor fluctuations, but nothing significant that has changed over billions of years. In some cases, you can do some stars maybe trillions of years that they would not change. All they're doing is, remember the proton-proton chain, fusing hydrogen into helium? That's their energy source. And they can continue to do that. Depends on how massive the star is. For very low mass stars, might be very high mass stars might be less than a billion, less than a million years. For very low mass stars, it might be up to a trillion years. Meaning that none of them have ever used up their hydrogen. If they can do it for a trillion years and our universe is only 14 billion years old, they got a long time to go. But eventually, things will change. Now all that nuclear fusion that's going on only goes on in one part of the star, only goes on in the core. The outer layers of the sun are not changing. So we're not fusing hydrogen to helium in the layers of the sun that we can see, only in the central core. So that's the only place where the composition of the sun, where hydrogen is being created into helium. So what's happening in the core is the amount of hydrogen is going down, the amount of helium is going up. Sun's right about halfway through its life, so it's about even right now. Over the rest of its life, it'll continue. Hydrogen will continue to deplete. Helium will go up until eventually you're out of hydrogen. Then some interesting things can start to happen. That's when actually things will happen. So what this means is that there will be some slight changes. I said the sun would be almost essentially the same. It does slightly change over those billions of years. Because as that happens, as you get less and less hydrogen, this core starts to collapse a little bit and heats up. So you will get more higher fusion rate and the luminosity of the star. So it will increase slightly. Not significantly. It's not going to change things drastically over any very short time frames. But so essentially the sun is not all that different than it was billions of years ago. And billions of years from now, yeah, fusion rate will have increased a little bit. It'll be a little bit brighter than it was before. But nothing that changes significantly on any kind of time scale that we, that we know. So what are these lifetimes like? Well, it really depends on how massive the star is. So a star that is 40 times the mass of the sun, that's a really massive star. Remember, 100 is the upper limit. We'll live about a million years. Any of those that formed when our galaxy formed, they're long gone. They only lived a million years. Our galaxy is 10 billion years old. As the mass increases, as the mass decreases, so 40 to 16 to 3, down to about 1, down to less, that amount of time increases. The exact numbers aren't important, but the whole idea is that very high mass stars They've got more mass, but they don't live very long. As that core gets hotter and hotter, they go through their nuclear reactions, their hydrogen, much faster. So even though you might think, boy, this has 40 times the mass of the sun, it's got 40 times the hydrogen, it should live longer. But it doesn't because it's eating up that fuel at much more than 40 times the rate the sun is. In fact, many times that. So, it's uh, going through that, you know, sort of like a, you know, got a big, big truck with a gigantic tank, right? Big tank for gas or diesel or whatever. You might not go much further than a small car with, you know, an eight or ten gallon tank. You might not get to go much further, even though you've got a lot more fuel there, because you're burning it up a lot faster than the small than a smaller vehicle. Well, stars are doing it the same way. 
That bigger one has a higher fusion rate and therefore goes through its fuel a lot faster. It might have four times the fuel, but it only lives a tiny fraction of the sun's life. This small star, which has less than half the mass of the sun, might live, what, 10, 20 times longer than the sun. It's got less fuel, but it's not using it as quick. Smaller mass, it doesn't need to produce as much energy to balance it against gravity, and it just continues. It just will continue to burn hydrogen into helium. And some of these, when you get down to the very smallest stars, much smaller than this, could last a trillion years. Things that are 200 billion years old, every star of that type that ever formed in the universe is still around. Our universe is only 14 billion years old. So anything that lives for 200 billion years is still around. Every single star of this type, pretty much every single star of this type would be around 14 billion years old. It's only these other ones that have actually had time to fully go through their lives. And that's what we kind of want to look at now. I mean, main sequence life is born. There's not much to tell you about other than what I told you with the sun. They don't do much. They just kind of sit there burning hydrogen into helium. The interesting things start to happen when they exhaust that fuel, when the amount of hydrogen gets down to nothing or essentially nothing. That's when things start to change. Because eventually, whether it takes a million years or a trillion years, eventually you're going to run out of fuel, right? Take your car, start driving, eventually, no matter how big your tank is, you're going to eventually run out of gas if you don't stop to refill it. And star has no way to refill it. So eventually you're going to run out of gas. Well, unlike the car, which would just then stop at the side of the road, the star will start to do some interesting things. Because you will have, you've used up its energy source. And right now what the star is doing, that energy is what's keeping it from collapsing. Gravity is trying to pull it down. Remember it was in a state of balance, gravity pulls it down, pressure pushes out, they balance perfectly, and that keeps the star stable. When you take away the internal pressure pushing outward, what's going to happen? Star's going to start to collapse. It's going to collapse down because there's no pressure. The pressure decreases, you don't have any fuel, and that star is going to start to collapse. So this star must change here, but two things will happen. Actually, the whole star doesn't collapse, the core collapses. So the core will begin to contract and get hotter and hotter. No energy source, so it will continue to contract. That heats things up. And remember, the only thing that changed during the star's life was this hydrogen, this core. The rest of this is still exactly the same composition as it formed. 90% hydrogen and 10% helium. So you build up a, a helium core, which is now beginning to collapse, but you do have another energy source. Not in the core yet, but you do have energy in what we call a shell around the core. As you heat up the temperatures at the center, that shell of material around your helium core now reaches temperatures where, heat, where hydrogen fusion can exist. So you start to you get a new energy source. The core is completely dead. It's still slowly contracting. It doesn't just collapse down to nothing. It's a slow collapse, and it will slowly contract and contract. But the shell around it will now start to produce energy. Now what that does is when you have energy producing in a shell around that core, the inner layers are contracting and getting smaller and smaller. The outer layers begin to expand and get tremendous in size. So we go from things like the sun to much larger stars, Delta Butis here, uh, Chi Cygni, 
that actually are much larger than the sun. And in fact, many times larger. You can see how much this would be considered a giant star. This would be a supergiant star. So the inner layers have collapsed. The outer layers are being pushed off because you do have that new source of energy. And here in this case, the energy being produced is enough to push out those outer layers and actually causes them to expand. So this is what will happen at the end of a life of a star. Core contracts down and gets smaller and smaller. At the same time, the outer layers are expanding. So that means it will change its position on the main sequence. Remember the, the HR, on the HR diagram, I'm sorry. Remember the HR diagram just plotted temperature and luminosity. That's all it was. So what is the temperature of the star? What is the luminosity of the star? For the star's lifetime, main sequence lifetime, it just sits there pretty much. It does not change. But what happens over time is that it will slowly, begin, as it exhausts that hydrogen, it will begin to move outward. And what will happen is the temperature, the surface temperature, the temperature we can see, starts to decrease. And the luminosity begins to increase. So it tends to move up towards the upper right hand side. So it's cooling off. Not the interior, but the exterior layers are cooling off. The interior is heating up, but we can't see that. All we're seeing when we look at the HR diagram is the external layers. So the outer layers cool off and get brighter, meaning that the star has to be expanding in size. It's a very cool star. But it's extremely bright, means it's got to be many times the size of our sun. So it goes from being something like this, to something like this, to something like that. So our sun will eventually go through those stages that we'll look at over the next couple of sections. But when we say that it's moving, it simply means that it's changing. The temperature that we see changes, and the luminosity that we see changes. That doesn't happen during that 90% of its boring life, that 10 billion years from the sun. It slowly changes. The sun may go from here to here in you know, 10 billion years. It will move a little bit. It will get a little bit brighter over the course of that time, a very small amount. The changes actually go more rapidly later on. And that's what we're going to look at over the next couple of sections. So finishing up this first section, again, you know, life on the main sequence, boring. We went through it all when we talked about the sun. That's what, that's what all the other stars that are on the main sequence are pretty much going through right now. Fusing hydrogen into helium, and that's it. When the helium is used up, the core contracts, the outer layers will expand. It'll become a red giant star, many times larger than it was before. And again, this is when things actually start to happen with the stars. So, next section I want to look at is how can we figure this out? For the, for the biggest star, it took a, took a million years, or close to a million years. Right? We can't watch one star go through its life. So how can we do this? Well, you know, the time scales are way too long. Right? I'm not going to be able to sit there and pick this star out. Oh, it's forming right now. I'm going to sit there and watch it go through its life. Which would be perfect. right? You want to watch the star as it's born, as it, as it forms, as it goes through its life, and then as it ages and dies. We can't do that. However, we can use an, I can use an analogy here. You know, how can we also understand how a human changes through their life? If we want to do a semester project right, on you know, how do humans age from birth to death? Well, generally, if you want to watch somebody aging, you can't do that in a semester. 
Can't watch a child born going through all their life stages out to old age in one semester. So impossible project, go on to something else. No, because you could study groups of people, right? could look at infants, you could look at toddlers, children, teenagers, young adults, adults. You could look at all the different eight and you could put together a picture of what's going on. Well, here's how a person would go through their lives. We can look at all the different stages of people and put that together. So even if some, you know, we have a better idea because we're here so we kind of know how things work, but imagine it's an alien coming to look at us. Okay, how do these humans evolve? Well, they don't have to sit there and watch, pick one person and watch you go through your whole life. They could pick a whole bunch of people and probably come together with a pretty good idea of how things work. So you could then do this project, would be doable in a semester, even if you had no knowledge of how humans actually age. So we do the same thing as stars. We can't watch one star go through its life. Not even the biggest star goes through fast enough, goes through its life stages fast enough for us to be able to watch it. However, we can look at stars at all different stages and then put together a picture of what's going on there. And one of the ways we can do that is by looking at stars that all formed together. If we just look at random stars out there, we don't necessarily know when they formed. We might see a random star in the sky, oh, pretty star, what's going on, how, long, how old is it? That's tough to tell. But we, can ha we do have some laboratories that we can use for, to study the changes that go on in the stars. And these are called star clusters. So star clusters are our laboratories for stellar evolution. Why are they so useful? Well, they all formed at the same time. And they formed out of the same stuff, the same group of, same group of mass, material. So the only thing they differ in is their mass. It's the only difference between them. Some formed with more material and got bigger. Some formed with less material and were smaller. And this is how we want to do a science experiment, right? You tend to say, we want to keep everything the same and change one thing. You know, how does affecting the temperature or how does affecting the amount of water affect plant growth? Well, you've got to keep the amount of light and all the other nutrients the same. But you give some more water and some less water and you could then use that. That would be your one thing that's changing. In the case of a star cluster, we know that all the stars formed at the same time, so they weren't forming some billions of years ago and some very recently. And they formed from the same material. So you didn't have some form with slightly different compositions that had more metals, some had less metals, etc. They all formed at the same time from the same stuff. So we can use this to study the effects of mass. How does mass affect the evolution of stars? We're keeping everything else the same. Now, comparing star clusters could be difficult then because they might have formed at different times. They might have formed from different, slightly different things. But at least looking within a cluster, we can tell the differences between of how, just how the mass affects the stages of evolution. So when we look at star clusters, I want to show you a couple different types. And there are two types of star clusters that we use that exist. There are open, sorry, there are globular clusters, which I pictured here. A globular cluster is a great big glob of stars. So that could have hundreds of thousands or a million stars within it. So very large. Uh, they are bound together gravitationally. They've got enough mass there that they're actually held together. So that cluster doesn't change. Just the stars go through their, go through their lives, but the stars don't actually spread out. There's enough gravity there that the stars are held together. Just like our sun has enough gravity to hold our solar system together. 
Well, these stars all together, when you put together their mass, have enough so that the stars can't randomly escape out into space. They're going to stay there. So they're located in the outer regions of our galaxies, of our galaxy. Uh, what we call the halo, which we'll talk a little bit more about when we actually get to um, when we get to talk about our galaxy in a couple of weeks. They consist of lots of stars and they're again billions of years old. These are very old clusters, some of the very oldest ones that we see. The other type of cluster is what we call an open cluster. You see the difference? Big glob of stars there, lots and lots of stars. Much smaller number of stars here. Maybe I said a thousand, but you know, I don't mean exactly a thousand stars. Some smaller number of stars could be a very small cluster, might have just a few hundreds to a thousand. Some might have several thousand stars in them. So it's a much smaller region. These ones aren't bound together. There's not enough gravity. If you add up all the mass of all those stars, there isn't enough there to be able to hold those stars together. And they slowly will spread out into space. So when we see an open cluster, we call it open because it's slowly spreading out. And if we come back and look at that cluster in a billion years, you might not even recognize it as a cluster. The stars will have slowly spread out into space. They'll still be there, but many of them will have spread out. If we come back and look at this cluster in a billion years, it's going to look just like that. Stars will still go through their lives. Stars will move around in their orbits. But the overall pattern that we see looked like this a billion years ago. It'll look like this a billion years from now. So these are the two types of star clusters that we see. The other grouping of stars that we see is even younger than this. So these are the oldest. These are younger. Typically can range from hundreds of millions of years, tens of millions of years. And we can also have some of the very youngest are what we call OB associations. O and B stars, those are the hottest stars that you get. The most massive stars, the ones that live the least amount of time. So when you see O and B stars, they don't live very, they don't live very long. So if you see them, they had to have formed recently. If they only live a couple million years, they couldn't have formed 100 million years ago. They couldn't have formed a billion years ago because they'd be gone. They'd have gone through their lives. They'd have used up all their fuel and evolved. So this is an example that of the Orion Nebula. This is looking at what we call the trapezium cluster, which is a set of very hot stars, these four at the center of the Orion Nebula. This is visible light. They're hard to see. This is infrared, which lets us see through that gas and dust. So these are extremely young clusters. Things that have formed within you know, hundreds of thousands of years. What you get astronomically speaking, that's you know, a few seconds ago. Yeah? So is an old type star uh, an old one or a new one? Old type star has to be very new. Because they're the ones that don't live very long. They might only live a million years, so they had to have formed recently. The later types can, could form recently, but they could also have formed billions of years ago. A star like our sun could have formed five billion years ago, like it did. You can't have any O stars that formed five billion years ago. So because if they did, they're gone. So an O type means a star can't form could, It could have formed, but it's gone, but it's dead. Just like you know, people were born 2,000 years ago. They're not around anymore. All the O stars that formed that long ago are all gone. That's what I mean. I mean yeah, so they could have formed. I don't want to say they couldn't have formed. They were there, but they don't live long. Just like you know, humans were born 2,000 years ago. Guess what? None of them are around today. Yeah. 
because they don't live long enough. Whereas humans that formed 20 or 30 or 50 years ago could still be around today. Does that get you? Ah, see, I gave you the answer then, I hope. <laughs> hey. Oh, no, that's fine. That's fine. Hey, I don't mind giving out the answers. <laughs> so, how can we use this to study the stellar evolution? How can we use this to study the evolution of stars? Well, we use the HR diagram. So what we want to do is we want to look at models of stellar evolution and compare that to the star clusters. So when we look at these, what we find in a very young cluster, the model would be the red area. The dots are what are the different stars that we measure. What are their luminosities? What are their temperatures? So this would be a theoretical model on the left-hand side. Yes. And this would be a very young cluster on the right-hand side. So stars up there on the main sequence, kind of a bulge here as these are beginning to still forming. And we see a very similar thing in the actual star cluster. What this means is that these stars have already formed. These are stars that are fusing hydrogen into helium. These stars here are theoretical, just still in the process of forming. And we see those when we look at the actual star cluster of similar age, of a very young star cluster. These stars aren't moving off, as I talked about. They're not moving off towards the red giant region. They're actually still in the process of forming. The, fa the bigger a star is, the faster it's going to form. So these stars will form really quickly. These stars will take a little bit longer. Not a big difference in terms of the overall age. It might only take several million years for them to form. So overall, in terms of the age of an old, old cluster, a few million years between the first ones forming and the last ones forming isn't a big difference. But it is what we see. So we can look at a cluster that is a very young cluster. Some of these stars have not yet reached the main sequence. And we can then use this as a model. Now if we look at a slightly older cluster, this is a cluster that would be closer to 100 million years old. All the stars that formed up here that were present, any of these higher mass stars, they're gone. They've already moved off over into the red giant region. So these are not stars that are still forming. Now we see that they've all formed. They've hit the main sequence and they're there. These are all the stars like our sun that are happily burning hydrogen into helium. The high mass stars are gone. They don't live long enough. They're completely gone. So what we can do is we can use, since they all formed at essentially the same time, we can use, we can look for what we call the turnoff point of the cluster. Where are they just leaving the main sequence? So right in here, someplace in here. These stars are all clearly off the main sequence. These stars are clearly on. Somewhere in between it's bending and it's turning. So these are the stars that are just using up their hydrogen just finishing it up. If we know roughly how long that age, that type of star lives, that's a star more massive than the sun, we could say that this cluster is then 100 million years old by noting where that turnoff point is. For an older cluster, it's even further down. This one is about 4 billion year old. So again, there's no stars up here. When we plot those stars, we won't find any. You will not find any hot O stars. You will not find any hot B stars. The A stars begin to disappear. And you get down to stars that are, you know, a little more massive than the sun that are beginning to finish up and move off in towards the red giant range, the ones that have used up their hydrogen. 
And again, you'd find that turnoff point. Where is that? At what temperature? What type of star is that? We know how long, theoretically, that type of star lives. We can say that cluster is this old. So we can use this to figure out the ages. As we go down to the lowest one, this is, what we, this is an example of a globular cluster. Um, the scales changed a little bit from what we saw. This was up to 100 times the luminosity. That's right there, 100 times the luminosity. So most of these stars, which are sun-like stars, are really just beginning to leave the main sequence and head off into the red giant region. So we look for that tur- what we call a turnoff point. Those are the stars that are just leaving and that tells us again how old the cluster is. Because remember they all formed at essentially the same time. And that will then tell us what the age of the cluster is. As these ones, you know, what stars are just using up their fuel. If it's a sun-like star, sun will use its fuel up in about 10 billion years. So 10 billion years, if this is a sun-like star that's just at the edge of that, just beginning to age, then we know that this is about a 10 billion year old cluster. There are still errors associated with this. If you notice as you go down here to the very end, there's a lot of scatter. You've got a real nice main sequence here and it starts to get really erratic here. Because you're looking at very, very faint stars, it's hard to get accurate measurements so there's a lot bigger errors down there than there are with the brighter stars that you can see. These stars, nice and bright, easy to detect. You get a pretty good flow as to the main sequence here and then what happens to that star afterwards. Down here, you just have a lot of errors in terms of trying to measure those accurately. So, how do we find out how old the cluster, how do we, what do we find for the ages? The youngest clusters are actually a million or less years old. And we know that because if we see a cluster with O stars, with B stars in it, they don't live. Some of those most massive stars only live for a million years or even less. So, if we see them, they couldn't have formed a billion years ago. They'd be gone. They'd have all died. If we, they couldn't have formed 10 million years ago if they only live a million years. 10 million years ago, that's 10 of their lifetimes. They're not going to be there anymore. They're going to be gone. So the oldest, the main sequence stars that we see, the oldest ones that we see on there, the most massive ones, tell us the age of the cluster. And we get things that range from millions of years old to more than 11, 12 billion years old. 11, 12 billion years old, these are some of the earliest things that formed in the universe. Our universe is only 14 billion years old. So these are things that formed the very early history of our universe. Our, before our galaxy formed, our galaxy is about 10 billion years old. So things that formed 11 or 12 billion years ago formed before our galaxy. And what we think now, and we'll come back to this when we look at galaxies, is that these are some of the building blocks of the galaxies, these globular clusters may have been things that helped to build the very early galaxies or clusters like these or similar types of clusters. Our earliest galaxies might have been really small things. Maybe globular cluster size, not exactly like the globular clusters that we see today, but that size at least. The galaxies started out really small and grew larger over the last 10, 12 billion years. So they are a way to be able to look at what, what things were like long ago and to be able to give us estimates of the age of the universe. If we find a globular cluster, if we were to find a globular cluster that was 16 billion years old, we'd have to rethink things because how can it be older than the universe? 
be like finding a rock in the solar system that dates six billion years ago. That's older than we think the solar system is. That would cause us to rethink things or wonder if it came from outside our solar system. You won't find a moon rock that's six billion years old. We've never found one. And if we found something, that would be really strange. It couldn't have come from our solar system based on everything else we know. If we found a globular cluster that was older than the universe, that would have us re-question you know, how old is the universe. Is it 14 billion years old? Well, if this globular cluster is 16 billion years old, then something else is wrong. Either we're getting something wrong with the cluster or we don't understand something about the universe. So finishing up this section, again, the way to look at stellar evolution to understand how, what stars do is by looking at the stars at various stages. So we can look at different star clusters and see very young clusters, so when, the, when those stars are going through their lives, when older clusters and older clusters. And we use these star clusters because, again, we're keeping everything the same except for the mass. Because all the stars formed at the same time and from the same material. So the only variable left is how much mass they ended up having. Where did they end up on the main sequence? And that's the only variable. And those oldest clusters help us to get an estimate of how old the universe is. All right. Questions? Alrighty. Well, on to the next section. What's going to happen? So, right now, when we left the star previously, its core was contracting. Okay, that can't go on forever. Eventually, it's going to have to stop. Something will happen, but it's contracting, and as it contracts, it's going to get hotter and hotter. The outer layers were expanding. So, what happens beyond? It's becoming a red giant. What happens beyond that? So, temperature is increasing. Temperature of something like our sun is about 15 million degrees. Get smaller, it's going up to 20 million, 30 million, 40 million, 50 million. It's going to get hotter and hotter. You have to get up to 100 million degrees to be able to get the next energy source. So that's why it takes it some time. That core contracts. It doesn't just collapse down and implode in some rare cases, but we'll talk about those later on. Um, but in general, it just collapses very slowly until you reach a temperature of 100 million degrees. Once you get that hot, now you can fuse helium into carbon. Why so much hotter? Remember when we were trying to fuse those hydrogen atoms together, positive charge, positive charge, trying to bring them together? We've got to overcome their natural repulsion. Right? Two positive charges want to push each other away. We've got to get them close enough that they can stick together. When we look at helium, we've got two positive charges and two positive charges, four times, right? Two times two is four, so it's got four times the electromagnetic force pushing them apart. We need to move them faster and faster. Plus, they're heavier, right? Helium is four times heavier than hydrogen. You've got to get them moving very fast so that you can get them close enough to stick together. So, and you also need three helium nuclei to collide at the same time. Can't just do two. If you collide two helium nuclei together, they can do that and they'll stick together for a fraction of a billionth of a second and then they immediately split apart. Two helium nuclei together don't form a stable nucleus. They form something that's completely unstable and breaks apart immediately. So you actually need to get this really high temperature because not only do you need to get two helium atoms together, but you've got to get three of them. You have to have the density so much that three helium atoms can combine at the same time. So what we call the triple alpha process. Triple alpha is because the alpha helium nucleus is called an alpha particle in radiation. 
So three of them coming together, triple alpha process. We take three helium nuclei, one, two, three, combined together. And if you do that, that forms one carbon nucleus. Just like fusing hydrogen into helium, you released a little bit of energy. Fusing helium into carbon gives you also gives you energy. So why is it not just two? Again, it's completely unstable. That when you fuse two of them, you can do it, but it doesn't last more than a, I don't remember the number, but it's like a billionth of a second and you don't have time. You have to get it high enough that you can get all three of them to essentially come together at the same time. Now how this happens depends on the star. If it's a very low mass star, something like our sun, that density got so dense down there, everything was crushed together as much as it could be almost before you get to this temperature. All of a sudden it undergoes what we call a helium flash. So instead of just being a nice slow beginning to helium burning as you get that temperature high enough, you all of a sudden hit that trigger temperature and the whole core ignites. And it will then slowly begin to expand, but it will very much undergo a very quick and rapid flash burning of, hel of helium until enough energy is generated to expand that core and get it back to some type of what we call normal matter. Essentially it's under such densities it's uh, in an unusual state and it doesn't behave like ordinary matter. So you need lots and lots of energy and that's what's happening here. The helium just flashes, lots of helium burning very, very quickly and in, yeah. So very, very quickly, I don't want to go into all the details of really what gets on there. It gets a lot more complicated than I want to go through here. But essentially if it's a low mass star, everything's so dense in the center that it, the helium flashes and starts burning really fast. Whereas in a very high mass star, you get up to that higher temperature faster, hasn't had time to condense down and compress all that material together, and it begins just like hydrogen burning does. So just like the hydrogen burning, it'll start gradually once you hit that temperature and we'll continue onward. So we'll see a little bit of a difference kind of in what happens with these two different types of stars. We're going to be first looking at the low mass stars. What happens to a star like our sun at the end of its life? And at this point, it has a new stability. It is actually stable again now. So essentially what happens is there's the main sequence sequence, that's where the sun is right now, five billion years from now it will slowly move up towards the red giant branch. And it will keep going up and up and up and getting bigger and bigger until it reaches up here, this point at the top. That's when all of a sudden the helium burning started. So all of a sudden helium burning started, snap, you've got that helium there and that star jumps. It goes from up here, so big and so, so bright, it becomes much hotter and much fainter and reaches what we call the horizontal branch here. It now has a new stability. It's expanded its core, it's made it a little bit bigger, it's calmed down. The helium flashes over. The helium flash is what causes it to go from here to here. Those outer layers contract back in and it becomes a pretty much an ordinary star almost again. It's nowhere near the main sequence, but it's now what we call a horizontal branch star and we'll sit there nice and calm for as long as it has helium to burn into carbon. So the helium flash starts, then it settles down here. So stars that we see on the horizontal branch are burning helium into carbon. So they're nice and stable again. There's no collapsing in the core. The core isn't collapsing. You've got an energy source in the core that you didn't have for the last bit of time. 
So the star will settle down there. It'll burn helium into carbon in the core. And around that, you'll have, still have hydrogen burning into helium in a shell around it. So what happens is the star starts to build up layers of material. You're now generating carbon core, helium burning in the core around that, and then a shell around that where hydrogen is burning. Don't have any hydrogen burning in the core because we've already used all that up. So the only hydrogen that we're going to get is what's burning up in the shell. So we've now reached a new, st new stability. We're burning, the helium in, we're burning helium into carbon. Now helium burning to carbon doesn't last as long. Takes, you, don't get as, you get a lot of energy from fusing hydrogen to helium. You get only a tiny fraction from fusing helium to carbon. So you have to burn it a lot faster. It's at a much higher temperature. It doesn't last near as long as the 10 billion years that it did for the sun. You might only be talking you know, hundreds of millions of years. Still a long time, but not near as long as it lasted on the main sequence. And again, this is where I said you're building up layers. You've got carbon and oxygen building up in the core. You have the rest of the core is fusing helium. Then you have a layer of hydrogen, and not at all the scale. Then you have the outer layers of the star, which are still unchanged. Those outer layers are not changing at all. So the star that we look at, even that's going through this, is still going to be made up of hydrogen and helium. We can't look down and see the core. When we measure what it's made up of, all we see are the outer layers. And they're still made up of hydrogen and helium. That's it. So what happens now? Well, for stars like our sun, we're getting down to the end of its life. This is about all it's going to be able to do. Stars less than about twice the sun's mass, which includes our sun, will never get hot enough for carbon to be able to fuse. That would be the next element. You build up a core of carbon, you get it hot enough, and the carbon starts to fuse into something else. That won't happen for our sun. The temperatures will never get high enough. So now as we use up the helium, the core get the same process again. The core starts to contract, contracts down, gets smaller and smaller. The outer layers start to expand. So what we had here. Again, this is we start on the main sequence. As the star exhausts its hydrogen, it moves up here. The core is condensing, 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 condensing. All of a sudden, you reach the point where another nuclear source appeared, and it jumps back down here. Sits there for a while, but eventually it uses up that helium, and it starts to move up again. And in this case, there's no more energy source. So it just continues. That outer layer continues, inner layer, sorry, the core continues to contract. Outer layers continue to expand get larger and larger and larger. And that's what it reaches. Remember, these are the largest stars up in this corner. We're getting up to those supergiant and hypergiant stars. This is what we call the asymptotic giant branch, or AGB, as it heads up towards approaching the giant branch again, really close to that, and then heads up into that outer corner. Now, there's no other energy source. So for a, sun, a star like the sun, we're about done. We have the core collapsing down, getting denser and denser. We have the outer layers expanding out. Eventually, they're going to separate. So the two are going to separate from each other. So what we're going to have is, again, the summarizing here, what did we have in terms of the times? Main sequence, about 90% of the star's life, about 10 billion years. I underestimate. I tried to guess that number off the top of my head. The, the red giant and the helium fusion, the, the horizontal branch for something like the sun would be about one and a half billion years, about 10% of its life. The second red giant phase, when it's heading up here again, is again a very fraction. We're talking only millions of years. 
The later stages go faster and faster and faster. The initial stage in the main sequence takes the longest times of time of a star's life. As you go through these later stages, they all occur faster and faster. And again, these are just some of the times that it takes here. You know, how long does it take between main sequence phase? What is its temperature? What is its luminosity like? And what is its diameter? And the whole idea is that it's getting bigger and bigger as it's going through these stages. And they're all moving faster. So it takes a lot more time, a lot less time to go from the it takes a lot more time to go up here than it took to go here. This goes very fast in millions of years. This might take tens or hundreds of millions of years to get up to that stage. But eventually what's going to happen is the, that, remember that outer layer is getting big. At this point, Mercury's gone. It's part of the sun. Venus is gone. We're gone. Mars is going to be gone, or at least out close to Mars. That's about how big the sun will become. Eventually all the inner planets will be engulfed by the sun, so we'll be end up being part of the sun. And engulfed into it, burned up completely, and just you know, vaporized. Essentially the whole planets will be vaporized and become part of the sun. Got five billion, got five, five, ten billion, five, six billion years to wait. But that outer layer is expanding more and more. Remember how big that is? That's getting out to the orbit of Mars. And you've got the core contracted down very, very small. It's got most of the mass and gravity, but you get this outer layer so far out that it, can, that it becomes unstable. It can no longer hold on to that. And that outer layer can get expelled out into space. And we can get something like this. So essentially think of that as a gigantic star. There's central, the little dot at the center, that's the core of the star. The ring of material around it are the outer layers of the star expanding out into space. Eventually it became unstable enough that little pulsations, little uh, variabilities, would push that out. And it would now begin to move fast enough that the star itself, what's left over, could no longer hold on to it. This is what we call a planetary nebula. It has nothing to do with planets. In fact, it's the end state of a star, much like our sun. So, five, six billion years from now, this is what our sun might look like to a distant astronomer. Looking back at it, they'd see the core of the sun there, and these outer layers that have now expanded light years out into space. But that's essentially the whole star. We're seeing the outer layers and we're seeing the core. Now, this is one example of a planetary nebula. They don't all look exactly the same. I've got some other ones here. These are some examples. This is the Cat's Eye Nebula and there's several other uh, nebulae that are present there. But we do see some variations. You know, some of them have like look like they've pushed off material at multiple times. There's a shell out here, there's another shell. You know, it might not be, this one makes it look nice and simple like there's one layer that just gets pushed out. Maybe that happens sometimes. But other times it might happen in stages where one layer gets pushed out, a bit of it, and the rest gets pushed out thousands of years later. So it might occur over stages. You see a couple that look maybe like that where there's this stage and then there's an outer layer. This one seems like it has multiple rings and they're not all concentric. Maybe there's multiple stars there. Maybe there were two stars and as they're moving around one layer gets pushed out and the other one gets and you get this uh, interesting patterns that are visible. So why is there such a variation? Well we might have binary systems. The nebulae will also change over time. So it depends on what stage we're seeing it. This is a really short stage of a star's life. 
You've been talking about billions of years and hundreds of millions and even millions of years for the shortest lived stars on the main sequence. This stage we're only talking about tens of thousands of years. So in order to see a star in this stage, it had to have gone through that within the last few tens of thousands of years. Because over time those will expand out into space and they'll disperse out into space and the nebula will be gone. But they are an important stage. It's, again, it's one of those things that looking at all these different stages. We see stars that are forming that we looked at previously. We see stars that are on the main sequence. We see stars that are evolving off the main sequence that are becoming red giant stars and super giant stars and horizontal branch stars. And we can piece that together to get that more complete picture of what happens to a star like our sun. So finishing up here. Later stages, we had, first we had hydrogen into helium on the main sequence. When we get to those later stages, we get helium fusing into carbon. That's the new energy source. This builds up the layers. We'll get those very different separate layers. And eventually the outer layers of the star will be expelled out into space, giving us things like the planetary nebulae that we see here. So that's a quick summary of what would happen to a star like our sun. What's going to eventually happen to our sun? A star half the mass of the sun pretty much will do the same thing. A star twice the mass of the sun will pretty much do the same thing. So I'm not going through all the different possible variations because there's not a whole big difference. A really low mass star will never be able to fuse helium. It'll never get hot enough at the core to fuse helium, just like some stars never got hot enough to fuse hydrogen, brown dwarf stars. So there are some slight differences there, but overall the process is the same. Where it's different in the last section I wanted to look at of this chapter is the more massive stars. So what happens to something that is many times the mass of the sun? The beginning is pretty much the same. It'll, it's burning hydrogen into helium. The hydrogen will be used up. The core will start to collapse. The outer layers, you'll fuse hydrogen in a shell. And then you'll get hot enough that you'll start fusing helium into carbon. No different than what the sun would do. However, what happens here is that temperatures will get hotter and hotter and hotter. And you will build up multiple layers of a star. So instead of the star just being those couple layers, in the case of the sun it was the carbon core and then helium around that and then hydrogen, the outer layer around that. You just had a couple layers, three layers to talk about. With a more massive star you can continue this. So you can actually have, there's the hydrogen, then you have hydrogen, uh, hydrogen to helium in, one, in, a, in a shell around that. And then inside that you have helium fusing to carbon. Then inside that you have carbon and oxygen fusing, magnesium and neon fusing, silicon and sulfur fusing. When you fuse silicon and sulfur, you end up with iron. Now if you remember, when you fuse hydrogen to helium, hydrogen to helium gave you a good amount of energy. So it could power the sun for billions of years. The more, the higher the mass elements you try to fuse together, the less energy you get. So fusing helium to carbon gives you less energy. You've got to go at higher temperatures. You have to use up your fuel a lot quicker to keep the star in balance. That continues. When you try to fuse carbon, you still get energy from it. There's a difference between the mass of what you're putting in and the mass of what you're getting out, but it's less. It gets less and less and less each time. So you get less energy. So eventually you get to a point where you build up iron. So in a very massive star, you will build up a core of iron. This is when the star runs into trouble. These are for the very most massive stars. 
There are stages in between where things will stop at, like our sun will stop at a carbon core, others will stop at magnesium or neon or even silicon. A star that gets to iron is one that's in trouble. And one example of a star like that that's getting there is the star known as Eta Carinae. This is a star visible in the southern hemisphere. Uh, this is what we see of it. This, the star is actually at the center there. It's been pushing off material. It's one of those really massive stars, right at the edge of how massive a star can be, about 100 times the mass of the sun. It's been ejecting shells of material for a while now. So what's going on in it? This is one of those stars that's getting close to the end of its life. Doesn't mean it will reach it within our lifetime. Even for things like this, we're still talking, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of years. This star could still look like this a couple thousand years from now. But it is losing a lot of mass. It is throwing a lot of mass out into space already. What will eventually happen is that core will become unstable. And that's when a star will explode. So something like the sun, zero chance of ever becoming a supernova. It will not blow up. It will become a planetary nebula, which I showed you in the last section. But it will never actually blow up. That takes the very most massive stars to produce iron in their core, which is needed. If you don't get up to iron in the core, the star, the core will eventually, eventually remain stable. Only when you build up iron do you end up with a big problem. But this is an example of a star that's getting there. This is one that astronomers will tell you this is going to be a supernova. Whether it will be in a couple years from now, or a thousand years from now, a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand years from now is a good question. But it is one of those stars that will eventually explode and it's going through building up all these layers right now. We can't look at it, I can't look at it and tell you what stage it's in, right? We can only see the outer layers, we can't see the inside. So we can't see where it's getting, what stage it's getting to. But we know that it is building up these heavier and heavier elements within it. So iron is the limit for nuclear fusion. Hydrogen to helium is the best by far. You can get lots of energy fusing hydrogen to helium. You get a little bit by fusing helium into carbon. And you can get less and less out of each reaction as you go further and further. But if you take two iron atoms and you get them hot enough, now iron atoms um, have, have, are very, very much more massive, so you've got a lot of energy trying to put them together. So iron has uh, is 26, a uh, mass of 20, or sorry, item element number 26. So trying to get uh, 26 protons and 26 protons to collide together, you need really high temperatures. But when you do that and you get the get temperatures high enough that you collide them together and they fuse, you lose energy. The products are actually now more massive. So you had less mass going in, you have more mass going out. E equals mc squared, you took a little bit of that, you took some energy, and you had to convert it to mass. So you're sucking energy out of the star when you start fusing iron. You suck energy, you're sucking temperature out. So it gets so the, starts to cool off the core. Well, if you cool things off, no pressure, the whole thing starts to implode. So essentially when you form the iron core, you, get, you keep pushing up the temperatures, that will be sucking energy out, and it becomes a runaway and the star actually doesn't explode, it implodes. So the whole thing collapses down, and then expels back outward. So it'll collapse down, bounce, and then push out the material. But that's what's happening at the center. The core will actually implode and create the supernova explosion. It will blow up the star. 
Again, only for the most massive stars. Our sun, zero chance of this ever happening. Even a star five times the mass of our sun, not going to happen. Only those most massive stars, things that are 25, 50, 100 times the mass of the sun, those are the only ones that are ever going to do this. So, where are these coming from? Where is this energy coming from? So, right now I've shown you all how to build up elements up to element number 26. Stars can do those. But we have lots of elements that are further than that. Silver, gold, uranium, tin, lead are all much higher than that. Some of those are actually created during the explosion itself. So you've only built up to iron through nuclear reactions. You can't build the other heavier elements through nuclear reactions because it takes energy to do them. Well, a source of that energy would be that massive explosion of the star ripping itself apart. So some of these, you can actually build these heavier elements through that explosion itself. Now, in terms of what you get, again, this is just a graph I wanted to show. This shows the amount of energy that you get. So hydrogen into helium, which is up there. The bigger, you, the further you move between these, going from hydrogen to helium, that's how much energy you're producing each, t- each time. Each time you're fusing those together. So going from, the further you're changing on this, going from hydrogen to helium is a lot. Helium to carbon is, a le- is much less. Carbon to oxygen is less. And as you work your way up through the elements, see how that curve is curving and then peaking? You're getting less and less energy out of each reaction. When you get up to iron, then it starts to decline. So that's when you get up to iron and you end up in trouble. Because you have to be able, if you're trying to get energy out of it, you can't. You can't get any energy by fusing iron nuclei together. It can be done, but it now takes energy. If we look at this end, that's that's where we get nuclear fission. We split apart uranium atoms to make lighter atoms. Now we're moving up towards iron and we're got a source of energy. So why nuclear fission works is because you're working the other direction. But iron's the most stable, the most tightly bound nucleus that exists, so there's no way to get any energy out of it. Now, when we look at stars and we look at what their uh, compositions are, we find two different populations of stars. We call population two and population one. Inventively named, we'll number them one and two. Uh, Population two stars are stars like our sun that have heavy element abundances, heavy element, anything other than hydrogen or helium, that are similar to our sun. So these are sun-like stars, population two. The globular clusters, on the other hand, remember those are really old, those are 10 billion years old. Those have population one stars. So population one, very early stars to form. They have much less of the heavy elements. Didn't have as many heavy elements to form from earlier in the history of the universe. You didn't have all the stars that have exploded as supernovae between when these stars formed 10 billion years ago, say, and the suns formed 5 billion years ago. Lots of supernovae would have occurred in that time that would have enriched the amount of heavy metals, heavy elements. Again, anything other than hydrogen or helium. So open clusters. Young clusters have population two stars like our, with abundances like our sun. Population one stars, much older, much lower abundances. What this means is that if we're looking for, star, for planets, we don't want to look around these old stars because they only have one-tenth or one-one-hundredth the amount of things like silicon and iron that a star like our sun has. 
It's going to make it a lot harder to form a planet like the Earth. Wouldn't make it harder to form a planet like Jupiter? Great, we can form lots of Jupiter-like planets because they've got hydrogen and helium, but they don't have silicon to make rocks. They don't have irons or other metals that are a big part of our whole inner solar system. Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, all very rocky and very metallic. So the later generations is what actually allows Earth-like planets to be able to form, gives us planets like this. So as we approach and finish up here, finish up the end stage of a star's life, is each stage takes less and less time. Main sequence, longest time, 10 billion years for a star like the Sun. Next stage, maybe a tenth of that. So they go faster and faster as you go through the stages. The temperatures in the core are increasing the whole time. So as you get up to these massive stars, the temperatures have increased from you know, 10 million degrees to 100 million degrees, pushing up towards billions of, a billion degrees, getting hotter and hotter in the core. So higher temperatures, faster nuclear reaction rates, the fuel doesn't last as long. And you get a little bit less energy out of each of those. So the star will quickly reach a limit. For a very massive star, it'll reach that limit where it builds iron up in the core. Once it does that, once it gets to the point where it has iron, it's down to days to live. Right? All the other stages we've talked about are, forget it, we can't begin to you know, imagine. Right? They're thousands, at the low end, they're tens of thousands of years. When, it, when a star builds up its iron core, it's down to days. It will not last very long. We don't know where Eta Carinae, the one I showed you, is in that stage. If it's there right now, if it's forming its iron core right now, we may have a supernova before the end of the semester. Right? But of course, I could have said that five years ago, and it still hasn't done anything. So we could still be decades or centuries away from getting to that stage. We can't see the inside of it, so we have no way to tell exactly what it's, what it's doing at its center. So that's when it's going to implode, that's when it's going to form a supernova. And in the next chapters, which this is the end for the exam portion for next week, uh, then we'll start to look at you know, what happens. We're going to look in more detail at what happens in a supernova. I've given you a building up to it. But we really want to look at supernovae and what's left behind after a star forms. We've really looked at what happens to the star itself, but we haven't talked about what kind of things are left behind. So finishing up here, what do we have? Well. The massive stars are going to reach higher temperatures. You've got more material, more material to condense, you're going to get higher temperatures at the core. And they can actually fuse elements up to iron. And those most massive ones that get up to iron are the ones that are going to tear themselves apart and rip themselves apart in a supernova explosion. Supernovae occur all the time. We detect dozens a year in other galaxies. The last time we knew of one in our galaxy is the late 1500s. They probably occurred, maybe just on the other side of the galaxy that we couldn't see. But we have not seen one, late 1500s, remember Galileo was 1600s? We haven't seen one in our galaxy since the invention of the telescope. And we'll talk about some of those, but you know, we haven't been able to study one up close. Most of the times when we see a supernova and it's a distant galaxy, all of a sudden it appears. Not that we can see any of the other stars around it. So I'm going to go ahead and finish up there. Again, that's what you need for the exam. So you can go look at the review quizzes, play around with those if you want to review some of the sample questions for the exam. And next time I'm going to go ahead and get started on chapter 23. We'll get a start on that for next week. We have to cover chapters 23 and 24. So questions? Otherwise I will see you on Thursday.